for breath after that one. Well, today we're reading in Psalm and we are chapter 59. The verses should be on the screen. Let's read together. For the director of music to the tune of Do Not Destroy, of David and Mictum, when Saul had sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O God. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me for no offence or sin of mine, Lord. I have done no wrong, yet they are ready to attack me. Arise to help me. Look on my plight. You, Lord God Almighty, you who are the God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. They return at evening, snarling like dogs, and prowl about the city. See what they spew from their mouths. The words from their lips are sharp as swords, and they think, who can hear us? But you laugh at them, Lord. You scoff at all those nations. You are my strength. I watch for you. You, God, are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. God will go before me and will let me gloat over those who slander me. But do not kill them, Lord, our shield, or my people will forget. In your might, uproot them and bring them down. For the sins of their mouths, for the words of their lips, let them be caught in their pride. For the curses and lies they utter, consume them in your wrath. Consume them till they are no more. Then it will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules over Jacob. They return at evening, snarling like dogs and prowl about the city. They wander about for food and howl if not satisfied. But I will sing of your strength. In the morning I will sing of your love, for you are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. You are my strength, I sing praise to you. You, God, are my fortress, my God, on whom I can rely. Amen. Well, like Joel said last week, I'll say the same this week. If I was picking a psalm to preach on, it wouldn't be this psalm. Not an easy passage and not an easy psalm. And actually, Anne was just saying to me there when, when I came in, she said, oh, it's, it's not an easy psalm. And someone else said the same to me. Uh, I think it was Anna was saying it's a difficult, it's a difficult passage. And it is. Um, it's not the easiest, but you know what? Let's go through it. Let's see what God has to say uh, to us from his word. Let me just get my notes sorted here. I'm trying to be modern and, and technical and it's... Uh, it's not doing me any favours. <laughs> there we go. Brilliant. So we're going to start by looking at the title of the psalm. And the title of the psalm should be about to come up on the screen, I hope. The title of the psalms are actually part of the scriptures. And sometimes we overlook the titles of the psalms and we just read the verses beneath them. But actually the title is part of the canon of scripture too. So let's look at this, this um, title together. So it's for the director of music. I think Andy might have preached on a similar psalm a 
few months ago, and he was telling us that the director of music, when psalms are appointed for the director of music, essentially this psalm would be taken and used as part of national worship. So the psalm here that we're reading, 59, the Israelites would have sang it together communally. And there would have been lots and lots and lots of them. It would have been great, I think, to hear the singing of the psalms if you're there in person. Maybe you'd feel the sand shake in the desert when the myriads of voices sang psalms to the Lord. So this psalm was sung collectively, and there's a specific context behind the psalm. When Saul sent men to the house of David to kill him. You can read about it in, in 1 Samuel 19. I'm not going to read it today just for the sake of time, but the context is, is it's clear on the page, right? Saul sends men to assassinate David. And it's interesting that this difficult, horrible, trying ordeal, really, in David's life was to become the subject of national singing, national praise, national worship even. The Israelites forever have this psalm recorded in the canon of scripture. And beyond that, we do as well. The whole human race, God has seen fit to record this painful event in the life of David for all of humanity to read, to study, to understand. I thought that was amazing that this man, David, a king, a great king at that, a great man, a man after God's own heart, I found it amazing that he would take an incident of such intense pain and suffering and he would share it openly with everyone, with the purpose that they might worship God. And why did they sing about it? Well, yes, to worship God. I wondered too if the psalm was given to the director of music for everyone to, to sing and to know about, that they might build each other up that we might learn from the experience of David, that we might see a man who was going through the most difficult of circumstances, and we might say, well, if he went through it and God brought him through, what I'm going through, what you're going through, God will bring you through, God will bring me through, our God is faithful. Maybe we learn from the experience of David. And so although the, the psalm itself is a little obscure, let's try and pick out some points to encourage one another from the word of God today. So here's the first challenge from the text, from the title of the psalm even, not before we even get into the verses. Do we encourage each other as a church family? Do we share with one another our stories of God? Do we share our God stories? Do we share how we feel? Do we share when we're suffering? Do we share when we're going through difficulties? And do we then build each other up? Do we help and support each other as a family ought to do because David did it I don't think our queen would maybe share her innermost secrets would she David did David shared and others were encouraged by it so maybe there's a challenge there do I share enough with you and do you share enough with me do we collectively bring together our challenges and pray for each other and encourage each other and build each other up let's do that I think Rob put it really well two weeks ago Rob was talking about being open and honest and, and sharing and I that resonated with me and I thought well maybe there's a little a bit of that from the psalm as well maybe the Lord's just saying that to my heart again today first Thessalonians chapter 5 you'll see it on the screen therefore encourage one another and build each other up it wouldn't be great if we were known as a church that would would do that and I think 
we do a pretty good job of that, but let's encourage each other all the more. Let's build each other up in our faith together. Hebrews chapter 10. Let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. Uh, and the writer says, and all the more as the day approaches. The coming of the Lord Jesus is drawing ever closer. Let's be believers who are encouraging one another daily when we think of these things. Now, here's a little thing just to note. We're not called in life to go it alone. As Christians, it's not meant to be a lonely path. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. We have God as our Father. We have the Lord Jesus as our great high priest. But we have, by God's grace, a church around us. And the word for church in the New Testament really just means called out people. From all colors and creeds and nations and backgrounds, every diversity of the human experience brought together in one, with Jesus as our glorious head. And we, by grace, form part of the body of Christ. We suffer together. We rejoice together. Let's be a church who encourages one another. So David says here, this is the psalm. It's the tune of do not destroy, the thought being of preservation, being preserved. It's a psalm of David. It's a miktam. Lots of conjecture about what a miktam is. I'm going to duck out with this one and say, speak to Stuart afterwards. I'm sure he's got a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> that was a cheap shot. And then it says, when Saul sent men to watch David's house in order to kill him. So here is the context. Now, I want to think about Saul for a minute before we dive into the text, because there's some lessons to learn from Saul. Not good ones either, but if we learn them from him, maybe we'll not fall in those traps ourselves. So maybe you all know the account here, and I don't want to be presumptuous, so I'll quickly recap it. But the Israelites were a nation that God called specifically to be his people. And... Um, the nation of Israel were in bondage in, in Egypt. They had a very difficult, awful life, an ordeal of a life, really, uh, living in slavery. And, and God raised up a man called Moses to go to the Pharaoh in Egypt and, and to say, God says, let my people go. Uh, and you may know the story of the plagues that came into Egypt. And eventually, the Israelites came out free. And God took them through the sea on dry land. And he delivered them amazingly. And as the Israelites went from that place and they started going through the desert traveling towards a land God had promised them they looked around at their circumstances and they were like in Egypt we had garlic to eat oh we had really nice food to eat and we had cloves and now we just get this manna from heaven and they were disgruntled with God can you believe it human nature crept in and then they saw all the nations around them and, and they said, all these nations around us, they've got warrior kings. We've got some leaders and some tents. God said, I'm your king. They didn't want him. And they said to Samuel, we want a king. And Samuel says to God, your people want a king. And God said, I'm their king. They shouldn't have a king. And again, the people wanted a king. And God said, well, tell them it's not what I want. But if it's what they want, they can have a king. And so Saul is given to them as their first king because they wanted to be like everybody else. Saul is described in the Bible as a man who was handsome, head and shoulders above his peers. He was strong. He was fearless. He had rich, 
riches, he had fame, he had power, he had authority. Saul was a man who, if you were writing a tick list of all the things you'd want, you'd probably have them. I bet he had a good head of hair as well, no doubt. And you know the story of David and Goliath, right? And this is how Saul and David interchange in our Bible. David, the boy who killed the giant. Saul and his army are, are standing against the Philistines and the monster of a man, Goliath, taunts them every day. And Saul and all of his army, nobody wants to fight Goliath. Not even Daniel, uh, Matthew Monk at the back there. He's probably the biggest man in the room. He wouldn't have had a chance against Goliath. And some of the soldiers had a little brother called David who came along. And little David comes and he's like, yeah, I'll fight Goliath. And they laugh at him. Goliath is insulted as are the Philistines and his own brothers taunt him. And he goes out in the power of God and he kills the monster of a man, Goliath. Saul and the army then chase the Philistines away. And as they return victorious, there are some ladies singing a song. Now just note, this is a teeny thing, right? But note how important. They sing this little gentle mocking song. Saul has killed thousands. David has killed tens of thousands. And like a lightning bolt in his heart, Saul's whole life changes upside down. The man who was great and leading and is in communication with God, he becomes bitter and envious and jealous because a few ladies sing a little song. Poor Saul, his feelings were hurt. Saul's life spirals out of control. He becomes paranoid, delusional, maybe even mad, some would say. He ruins every relationship around him. His daughter, who marries David, his other daughter that he tried to get married to David, his son, who he betrays the trust of over and over again, everyone that he touches, he ruins their lives. David is sent out in, into the wilderness, running for his life. And we find Saul eventually taking out his own sword, begging for his swordsman to put him to death, and he won't do it. And Saul takes his own sword, and he ends it because he was in a place he really probably shouldn't have been. And we can trace it back to this. Bitter envy and hatred in his heart. It's a stark warning all the way through the Psalms, all the experiences of David that we read of. Saul had that sin in his heart. And it jumped out to me when I read the scriptures and I want to share it with us today. If we are harboring those sorts of thoughts in our hearts, maybe you have a bit of jealousy or of bitterness. These are cancerous things and they ought not to be amongst the people of God. Human nature, of course, it's hard, isn't it? It ruined Saul and the nation. It ruined them completely. May we just examine our hearts before God. What's in, in my heart? And when I think of other believers today, do I have that? You know, they've got this and they've got that and I wish I had that. You shouldn't have it and it shouldn't be there. Let's just examine our hearts. James chapter 3, a lovely practical chapter. Uh, it should be on the screen. It says to us here, he was wise and understanding among you. Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. And here's the, the challenge. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambitions in your hearts, 
do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. A stark warning to us all, for Saul. His life is a statue of warning to every Christian. Now, as we get into the verses, the first five verses here, David begins by praying. Prayer is always a good idea. I like how David prays here because it's just real and honest and open and from the heart to the point. He prays for deliverance. He prays to be saved. Do you remember Nehemiah? Do you remember he was standing in the presence of the king once and he had a great ambition to go off and rebuild the walls in the city of Jerusalem. And the king puts him on the spot. And while he's talking with the king, Nehemiah records, and I prayed to the God of heaven. Just a teeny tiny micro prayer under his breath in the seconds between sentences. Who knows what he said? David here just brings to the Lord what's on his heart. Deliver me. Let's be encouraged in our prayer life, all of us. We can't always find the words that we want, can we? We're not all eloquent and we don't all have these flowing long prayers. It's difficult. It's a battle and a struggle to pray. Keep on praying. Just baby prayers, teeny prayers. Bring to God what's in your heart. And so he prays for deliverance. Notice that it says, for my God. David calls upon the personal God. He prays to, to my God. I think in the, the, new, the NIV there it says, oh God, but in some versions, the King James Version, for instance, says, my God. And here's a prayer who, of a man who knows God. Well done, David, right? Tick in the box for David. He knows how God acts. He knows what his character is like and his personality is like. He knows that God is able because he's close to God. He lives in communication with God every day. He knows that God answers prayer. He's seen it time and time and time again. And so when he's in a problem, in a sticky situation, he does what he knows best. He turns to the God of heaven, to my God, and he prays for deliverance. Now in the psalm, there are a number of names of God that are used. And I, I'm not like, you know, I'm not a clever guy. I don't want to get technical. That's, you know, we can leave that for Joel. Joel can do the technical stuff when he preaches. It's not my bag. But, but here's something about some of the names of God, right? So David here, he, he calls to God, and this is the first time his name is used. It's Elohim in this instance, one of the names of God. This is the commonest name that we have for God in the Bible. It's Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. And it's thousands of times in the Old Testament. And the thought of, of this name for God is a God of strength and might and of power, the one true God, the living God the creator and sustainer of everything. So David calls out to this God who is my God, but hey, he's the God who holds everything in his hands. He's infinite and he's awesome. And he says to God, be my fortress. The thought behind this word is here. David is saying to the Lord, Lord, elevate me. Lift me up. Take me out of this mess and bring me to a place of safety and security. He wants to be saved. The high tower that David writes about in Psalm 
61. From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me back to the rock that is higher than I. In times of difficulty, David calls upon the great infinite God, but he says he's mine. I know him. And I'm praying that the God who holds everything in his hands would lift me up from this and bring me to safety. It's interesting that even if you were to be in a high tower, the assassins would still be around about. David writes about them like dogs and they come back again at night. The problem isn't gone away. The problem is still there. These men, they are the modern day SAS, right? Sent by the government, by the king. Assassins at your door ready to kill you. The problem exists, right? But David's saying, Lord, lift me up above it. Take me out from it. Elevate me. Lift me up, Lord, and, and save me. And sometimes in life, God doesn't just magic the problems away. But he's there, isn't he, when we need him. He's there with us in the difficulty. Now, as we go through verses 3 and 4, David pleads his ignorance here. He's saying to the Lord, I, I'm suffering, Lord, for nothing that I've done wrong. I haven't sinned against Saul. I've not wronged him. I've not done anything terrible. The New Testament reminds us, as Christians, doesn't it, of suffering, even when we have done no wrong. In fact, the exact opposite in 1 Peter chapter 2, of suffering when we do good. Suffering for righteousness. And Paul says, if you endure it, it's commendable. It's a good thing for us as Christians to go through it. And there will be times, guaranteed, maybe there are times presently when, like David, we'll go through suffering. I don't suppose any of us here have ever had armed, masked men outside their house with guns and knives trying to kill us. Maybe if you've been to War's End, that happens sometimes. <laughs> I don't suspect it's the everyday challenge that we all face. Probably not. But there is pain, isn't there, in the day-to-day -day in life. Whether it's just an unkind word, someone's mean to us, someone lets us down. We thought about that in home group, didn't we, a few weeks ago. We get these trials and tribulations and suffering and pain. Remember that the Lord Jesus suffered and had done no wrong. Like David saying, Lord, I'm innocent. I've done nothing wrong. Remember Isaiah, when he writes about the Lord Jesus all those years before he was here, the suffering savior, despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. When we find ourselves hurting and suffering and sad, and down when we take it to the Lord remember this he's walked the same path he knows exactly how you feel he suffered he went through those pains and those emotions every human experience apart from sin our Savior has passed through and he draws near as a great high priest to comfort us so keep that in mind when we do suffer and it's promised to us as Christians we do suffer he draws near and he can comfort. Now at the end of verse 3, David uses again here the name of the Lord. Another name is used. This is the, the name Jehovah. Sometimes it's translated. Remember the Lord said to Moses, I am. That name that speaks of his presence with us, his nearness, the accessible God, the one that's with us in times of need. And 
David prays to the Lord who is present, the I am, the self-sustaining one, the existing one, the one who lives and is near him. David says, yes, this is the God that I'm praying to. He's right here with me. I'm calling upon him in confidence. And he appeals to the Lord, rise up and help me. He prays now to the Lord God Almighty. Now, here's the, the technical bit. I'm going to kill the, the pronunciation. I apologize. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts. Hosts can mean like hordes, can't it? The Lord of hosts. The Lord who is Lord of everything. All the hosts of heaven and all the hosts of earth. God over everything. The God of the rich and the poor, of the master and the slave. This name expresses his power and majesty, that he can do what he wants, when he wants, because he is God over all. He is sovereign. And then David speaks and he prays now to the God of Israel, the God who makes and keeps his covenants. If you've never been a Boy Scout, this is being a Boy Scout on my honor. You make it a promise. God is the covenant keeper, the God who keeps his promises. David calls on the Lord in all these different ways, and I love it. I love how intimately David knows God. Think of the shepherd boy in the field. Think of him at night on his own, looking after sheep. Just him, nobody else with the animals, in the darkness, and the stars all around him. What was he doing that whole time? I think he was fostering this nearness with God every day, every night, walking with the Lord. And when trouble comes... He knows all about who his God is. His confidence is rooted in God. Now, in verse 5, David makes an appeal for God to punish his enemies. Now, Joe mentioned this last week. Similar sorts of thoughts here. In the New Testament, particularly in the church age, we are, we are living under grace, aren't we? God is sovereign and God is judge. It's not our place, is it, as Christians, or indeed as humans, to seek vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He has appointed a day in which he will judge in righteousness. The Lord Jesus will judge in righteousness. And his judgment will be final, and it will be fair, and it will be holy. Nobody will be able to raise a word or open their mouth at the final judgment of God. Maybe we are wronged in life. God will put things right. In eternity it's not our place to seek judgment over others David then goes on to describe these men who are coming to end his life and I'm not going to spend much time thinking about that but look at verse 9 if you've got your Bible open David here makes an amazing a wonderful declaration of faith he says you are my strength really simple isn't it you are my strength i wonder when he wrote this if he was thinking back to the battlefield with goliath i wonder if that was in his mind when he thought because he had a sling didn't he and five smooth stones that he took from the stream and he was a boy and goliath was a monster he knew he's no idiot he knew he couldn't kill goliath physically it was a mismatch. Goliath threatens to tear him limb from limb. And if they'd put the two of them in a cage, it's probably what would have happened. 
but he had the strength of God behind him. And here, I think David maybe is in his mind going, hey, I remember that, Lord. You gave me that power, that accuracy, that might, that spirit to go into battle, and you did it before. You can do it again. He says, you're my strength. You're my strength. You're my high tower, my fortress, my place that I go for protection. And David says, even in these circumstances that I'm in here, you're my God that I can rely upon. I can trust in. How do we trust people? You've probably all done the thing at school when you were kids where you stand up and someone stands behind you like that and you say, lean back and they'll catch you. It's a trust exercise. I was the idiot who moved and let my friend fall to the ground. A bad exercise in trust. Don't always trust people. We trust through experience, don't we? We learn to trust people. Uh, and we learn to trust things. You trust that your car will start if you've got a reliable car. If you've got a NAF car, my wife's car is very unreliable. Every time I turn the key, I think, oh, are we going to get the engine going today? It's been a bit of bother, that car, in the past. But we learn from experience whether to trust or not to trust. Well, David here has learned to trust his God. And how do we trust in the same way? Well, Psalm 105 says this. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember. So we're looking back over things that God has done now. Remember the wonders he's done, his miracles and the judgments that he's pronounced. Every miracle recorded in the Bible is a reason for us to trust in God. Every experience we have with him when we walk with him and he helps us is a reason for us to trust in God. David had amassed this bank of trust and of faith in God. And when we're in difficulties too, we can go back to the same bank that David went to. Yes, the Lord helped me through, through that experience. The Lord brought me through when I felt like that. When I nearly gave up, when I nearly lost my faith completely, God just gently picked me up and pulled me through. We can, all of us, go back on those experiences, both from the word of God and from the things that we have been through in life, we can say, yeah, God did it for me before. He can do it for me again. I wonder how many, I'm not asking Stuart, I wonder how many read the devotion this morning that came through on email. It was like seven o'clock or something like that, so probably not many. Maybe they'll read it later, I'm sure. But Stuart was talking about a time when they were asking the leaders, who, who's been leading a church for such a long time? And you know, everybody stood up who'd been there for and gradually they sat down. If you've been there 20 years, and if you've been there 25 years, and people sat down, and eventually there were a few left who'd been for years and years. Hey, to, to the younger ones in the room today, look at the older ones in the room and see God's faithfulness. See the older saints who have been through it all. They've seen everything that we haven't seen yet. They've been through every experience and more than we will know, the younger ones even than me. They've been there and they've seen it and they have proved God again and again and again. Look to the older saints with reverence and respect because God has proved his faithfulness in them. And to rely on the power of God, we need to cease trusting in our own frail efforts as well. That's hard for me. I, I, I want to be, I think Rob said it before, I want to be in control. I want to drive. I want to know what's going on. I want to be in charge doesn't always work like that. 
the Apostle Paul said of God, his strength made perfect in my weakness. It's okay to be weak. It's okay to say to God, I can't manage, Lord. You'll help me. His strength in my weakness. Verse 10. David uses a really beautiful, descriptive name for God here that perhaps the NIV doesn't pick up so well. So I'm going to quote from, I think it's the New King James Version. It says, my God on whom I can rely. My God of mercy shall come and meet me. That's the thought in the New King James. My God of mercy will come and meet me. The thought of, of, is this for David. In all the strife around him, God's coming to where I am. My God of mercy, kind, loving, generous, forgiving, gracious. My God of mercy, he's coming out to meet me. He's with me. He's beside me. The problem still exists. The issue is still there. The pain is real. But my God of mercy is with me. I think that's lovely. He's there for us. He comes out to meet David. In Psalm 21, David says, You came to greet him with rich blessings and placed a crown of pure gold on his head. That was his experience. You came out to meet me. Isn't that lovely? And then in verses 16 and 17, Rob's mentioned these verses already, this wonderful declaration again from David. I will sing of your strength. In the morning, I will sing of your love. The morning always speaks of a new start and of fresh hope. If you're anything like me, I'm determined, right, and I have been for months to lose weight. And Deborah always says, don't have that dessert. And I always go, well, start tomorrow. And she says, don't have two puddings. And Judith can attest to this last night. I did have two puddings. And in my mind, I thought, oh, tomorrow I'll not have two puddings. Tomorrow always brings the fresh hope, doesn't it, of something different and something new. I'm probably going to have two puddings again today, right? But David says in the morning, I'll sing of your love. Supreme confidence. I'll be here tomorrow. His wife, Saul's own daughter, let him out the window in the night. I'll be there tomorrow. I will sing to the Lord in the morning. I will renew my song to God. He claims him as his refuge and his fortress. God has promised us his presence. And David lifts up one final monument of the goodness of God as he brings the psalm to a close. Again, he claims God as his own, as his personal God. He declares his praise. He talks about these evil, bloodthirsty men around him. And David says, again, you're my God. I rely on you. What do we take from, from the psalm? It's a difficult psalm. It's not an easy psalm. Well, Christians get sick. Christians die. Christians lose their job. Christians have broken marriages. Christians go through everything that people who are not Christians go through. And sometimes more because there's spiritual warfare ongoing as well. And when we do, because we're promised that we will, where do we turn? And how do we face it? David did a good job, I think. Now, his, his whole life wasn't perfect, was it? He messed up sometimes like we all do. But here, he does really well. Every time 
the Lord picks us up. It's another reason to praise him. It's another reason to sing to him like we've been doing this morning. I'm going to pinch one more of your thoughts through this. In the devotional today, you know the bit that always says thought. Faithfulness reflects the character of God. I thought that was lovely, Stuart. Faithfulness reflects the character of God. What we're not doing here is lifting up David and going, look how faithful David was. And he was, right? We're saying, look how faithful his God is and is mine and is yours. He can be a great God to us all. If you're not a Christian today, we want to lift up Jesus to you. We want to say that the God who is a fortress to Christians, he can be a fortress for you too. He's overcome death. God's own son, Jesus, came to earth and died for my sin and for yours at the cross at Calvary. And he rose again. He's living today. The Bible says he lives in the power of an endless life. Sin is defeated. You can have your sins forgiven. You can have peace with God. You can know the creator God like David did. You can feel his presence. You can know him personally. You can be drawn to him. He will lift you up on that high tower. He'll set your feet upon a rock, even his son Jesus Christ. Call out today in faith to Jesus and be saved. He is a great savior. Like David says, a God on whom we can rely. Before Daniel comes up, I'm going to close with some verses from the Apostle Paul from Romans chapter 8. Paul says this, I am convinced, he doesn't know the verses, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels or demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth or anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Faithfulness reflects the character of God. Thanks, Daniel.